You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you. Is the microphone working well enough? Yeah. Okay. I, I had a little trouble about what deciding what to read because obviously I, I didn't have anything short enough to read the complete thing in 15, 20 minutes. Uh, but he was talking about uh, steampunk being sort of a positive sort of thing, and mine isn't. Um, yeah, and, and in fact, I noticed in the steampunk thing, they even have a warning a label. I, I thought I'd read the warning before I actually, I'm not going to read from it. I'm going to read from something else. But I thought the warning was kind of funny, actually. And because uh, I looked at it and I thought, I didn't know I did. It said, steampunk can be retro and entertaining while also being very dark. The sometimes shocking The Steam Man by Joe R. Lanzell doesn't just combine all sorts of steampunk tropes. It blows the lid off of them, creating an action-filled story that also horrifies within its very complex structure. Leave it to Lansdell to postulate that the traveler from H.G. Wells' The Time Machine has damaged the space-time continuum, turning hi- uh, him into the dark rider. Squeamish, squeamish readers beware. So, you've been warned. You're in a positive way. Okay, I'm going to read from uh, Flaming London. Uh, Flaming London is actually a, a sequel, but it stands on its own. But it doesn't hurt to have read Zeppelin's West. But uh, this is a, a story that's pretty much, it's not always from the viewpoint of, but presumably written uh, as a dime novel, but as an actual experience by a brain-enhanced seal named Ned. And... Uh, <clears throat> Before my career as a best-selling novelist, I lived an active life. I knew Captain Bemo, Dr. Momo, Buffalo Bill, still my hero, Annie Oakley, a peach of a woman, Wild Bill Hickok, a man's man, well, a seal's man as well, Sitting Bull, who invented the word stoic. I knew many others as well. I cruised beneath the seas in the naughty lass. I lived on the island with Dr. Momo when he made his beast men, and I am, in fact, a product of his handiwork. I even knew Tin, who came from a world far away, and I knew the Frankenstein monster, who was one hell of a fine fella. And I was there when the Martians came and all the horrors that accompanied them. I was a companion of Samuel Clemens, otherwise known as the great novelist Mark Twain. I knew his friend Jules Verne. I knew H.G. Wells. I knew the Lost Island, and I knew London when it was in flames. In my life, I have eaten many fish. From the autobiography of Ned the Seal, Adventure Extraordinaire. Part 1, Invaders, A Dark Moment for Mankind, Number 1. 140 million miles across the vast expanse of blackness and prickly white stars on the planet we call Mars, the red sand shifted, and out of it rose a magnificent blue-black oily machine with 26 enormous barrels. The barrels were cocked and loaded. The barrels fanned wide. Greased gears rotated and lifted them into their trajectories. Then there was a sound in the thin Martian air like 26 volcanoes erupting simultaneously. The great guns spat shiny silver cylinders dragging blue-red flame toward our Earth at a blinding speed. From Earth, the eruption was noted by astronomers, but there was no definite conclusion as to the cause. Nothing like it had ever been seen. Twenty-six objects sped toward Earth. They were observed in our our day and night skies as twenty-six flaming streaks. They all smacked the Earth or its waters. Several in America, several in Europe, one just outside of London, one in a lake in darkest Africa, another in India, several in the Siberian wastes, four in the Atlantic, four in the Pacific, one in the Sandwich Islands. There were all kinds of guesses as to the source of these objects, but no one knew at the time that it was the beginning of an invasion from Mars or that more flashes of light would follow. And no one knew about another problem. 
The very fabric of space and time was in jeopardy. Part two, Huck Finn bites it and Mark Twain moves out. <laughs> in the Casbah of Tangier, Samuel Longhorn Clemens, better known as Mark Twain, sweaty as nitroglycerin, drunk as a skunk, and just as smelly, resided in his stained white suit on a loose mattress that bled goose down and dust, and by lamplight he pondered the loss of his shoes and the bloated body of his pet monkey, Huck Finn. <laughs> Huck lay on the only bookshelf in the little sweat hole, and he was swollen and beaded with big blue flies. A turd about the size and shape of a fig was hanging out of his ass, and his tongue protruded from his mouth as if it were hoping to crawl away to safety. He still wore the little red hat with chin strap and the green vest Twain had put on him, but the red shorts with the ass cut out for business were missing. Twain was uncertain what had done the old boy in, but he was dead and pantless for whatever reason and had managed in a final gastronomic burst to stick that one fig-sized turd to one of the two books on the shelf, Moby Dick. And his distended tongue lay not far from the other book, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, written by Twain's good friend Jules Verne. Huck, bookended by sea stories, lay in dry dock. Twain rose slowly, bent over his pet inside, the room stank of monkey and monkey poo. With reluctance, Twain clutched Huck by the feet, and as he lifted him, the tenacious turd took hold of the heavy tome of the Moby Dick and lifted it as well. <laughs> Twain shook Huck and Moby Dick along with the turd, and it came loose. Twain then peeked carefully out the only window at the darkness of the casbah below and tossed Huck through the opening. It was a good toss, and Huck sailed. Twain heard a kind of whapping sound, realized he had tossed Huck with such enthusiasm he had smacked the wall on the other side of the narrow alley. It was a cold way to end a good friendship, but Twain hardly felt up to bearing the little bastard, and he was actually pissed that the beast had died on him. Huck had wandered off for a day, come back sickly, vomited a few times, and set about as if to doze on the bookshelf. Sometime during the night, Twain heard a sound that he thought was the release of his own gas, but upon lighting the lamp, found it in fact to be Huck, who had hunt launched that sticky fig-shaped turd. He saw the little monkey kick a few times and go still. Twain, too drunk to do anything, too drunk to care, put out the lamp and went back to sleep. A few hours later, hungover but sober enough to wonder if, he had all, if it had all been a dream, he lit his lamp to find that Hook was indeed dead as the Victorian novel but without the shelf life. <laughs> Flies were enjoying themselves by surveying every inch of Hook, and due to the intense African heat, Hook had acquired an aroma that would have swooned a vulture. No question about it, he had to go. With Huck dead and tossed, Twain decided to pour himself a drink, but discovered he had none. The goatskin of wine was empty. Twain dropped it on the stone floor, stood on it, hoped to coax a few drops to the nozzle, but alas, nothing. Dry as a Moroccan ditch in midsummer. Twain removed his coat, shook it out, draped it over the back of the chair, seated himself. He sat there and thought about what to do next. He had sold all of his book collection except 20,000 Leagues, which was signed, and the beturted Moby Dick. He didn't even have copies of his own books. It was depressing. When he was strong enough, he rose and made coffee in his little glass pot. It was weak coffee because there was only yesterday's grounds left, and the biscuit tin contained only a couple of stale biscuits, which he managed to eat by dipping them in the coffee. By the time he had finished breakfast, light was oozing through the window, and he could hear the sounds of the casbah below. Blowing out his lamp, he recovered Moby Dick from the floor, wiped it clean with a cloth and the remains of the coffee. He left a, it left a slight stain, coffee, not shit, but he hoped it would damage what, wouldn't damage what value the book might have. Tangier was full of readers of most anything in English, except his books, it seemed. And he might get a few coins for it, as well as the signed copy of 20,000 Leagues. It would be just enough money for a real meal of fruit, knowledge, and a bit of wine, as well as a rent, which seemed pointless. 
What after that? There was no place for him to work, and his new novel was going about as well as his life had. Everyone he knew and loved was dead. Well, almost. There were a few friends, Vern among them. Twain searched about and found his missing shoes. Then he grabbed a big white canvas bag and stuffed it with a few belongings, his manuscript in progress, gathered up the two books, and headed out to the Casbah. As he climbed down the narrow stairs and rushed into the street, he came upon Huck's body being feasted upon by dogs. The biggest of the dogs, a mongrel with one eye and scum around it, wrestled Huck away from the others and darted down the street with his prize, the monkey's tail dragging on the flagstones. Twain sighed. Perhaps when he died, that was what was to become of him, tossed in the street, eaten by dogs. It was better than being savaged to death by book critics, the son of a bitches. <laughs> the street stank of yesterday's fish and today's fresh fish. Blood dripped from the tables and gathered in little rust-colored pools and slipped in between the grooves and the stones. The reek of ripe olives bit the air and chawed and chewed at Twain's nostrils. He wandered the crooked streets, which just six months ago he would have found harder to navigate than the Minotaur's maze, and came upon Abdul laying out his sales goods on a worn but still beautiful Moroccan rug of blue, green, and violet. Among the items on the rug were a few books. Twain recognized the titles he had written, books from his very own collection. Each one of them reminded him of the few coins he had contributed to drink and women, mostly drink. Abdul eyed Twain with his bag and two books under his arm. My friend, more books? You can see I do not need them. These are my last books, Abdul. I sell these. I'm taking the ferry to Spain. And what there? You should stay here among friends. You old pirate, you give me little for what I've sold you. These are fine books. They're not worth much. I sold you copies of my own novel, signed. Alas, they are not worth much either. Perhaps had they not been signed. <laughs> Very funny, Abdul. If I didn't like, <laughs> feel like an elephant had sat on my head, I would give you a good old-fashioned American ass-whipping. Abdul pulled back his robe and revealed in his belt a curved holstered blade with an ornate handle of jewels and silver. Well, maybe I wouldn't, Twain said. Will you buy the books, Abdul? Promise you have no more? I promise. Twain squatted, laid them on the blanket. Abdul had stretched out on the ground. What's this stain on Moby Dick? A fig got squashed on it. My monkey did it. Where is Huck? Uh, he leaped out of the window this morning and committed suicide, landed right on his head. Abdul looked at him. Even monkeys fall out of trees, Twain said. Very well, I will give you in dollars, Abdul. Very well, I will give you four dollars. Jesus Christ, the 20,000 leagues assigned to me by Jules Verne. The both of us certainly have some coinage for collectors. Okay, how about I give you $10? How about you give me 15? Deal. Three, a ferry ride and an injured seal. It was more money than Twain expected to receive for the book, so he bought some figs, a skin of water, and boarded the ferry to Spain. It took most of the day, and the sea was choppy. Twain lost his figs and water early on, throwing them up in a brown stream over the side. As he leaned over the railing and watched the water churn below, he considered losing himself as well, but gradually came to his senses. He realized that he was feeling better as the wine wore off, realized, too, that this was the first time in six months he had been truly sober. It wasn't a great feeling, but it really wasn't that bad either. <laughs> Upon arriving on the coast of Spain, he and, this, and the passengers, as well as a dozen goats and a cage of chickens, disembarked. It felt good to be on solid ground, and after buying some coffee in a little outdoor cafe, fending off a half a dozen souvenir peddlers and a fat Spanish whore who wanted to sell him a quickie, or for half the price, squeeze him off between her legs, he decided to splurge another coin and catch a cart ride to where Vern was staying, working on yet another successful novel. 
Twain envied Vern. He seemed to be able to write at any time and under any circumstance. As of late, all he could think about was the death of his wife, Olivia, and the death of his daughter, Susie, by disease, Jean drowned in a tub while having a fit, and Clara married and gone from him, living somewhere in Europe, a place unbeknownst to him since beginning his wanderings. He hoped her life was good. He hoped he would find her again someday. He hoped even more that some of his old self would return to him, like a lost dog, worn out and tired, looking for a familiar bed, a curry comb, a pat on the head, and a good meal. As the cart clattered along, Twain noted the beautiful coast. Perhaps this was the key to Vern's success, a beautiful view. The casbah was interesting and exciting in its own way, but it wasn't beautiful, and too much excitement and noise did not a did not a good rider make. Here you had the ocean and the shoreline with natural white sand, and there were the rocks upon which the ocean foamed, and way out beyond that fine blue water, a thin brown strip that was Africa, the coast of Morocco from which he had come. As they neared Vern's residence, Twain stopped the driver, paid him, and in spite of his old aching bones, decided to walk along the coast and wind his way up to where Vern lived in a beautiful villa on a rise of white rocks overlooking the sea. As he walked along the beach, his bag slung over his shoulder, Twain discovered a strange thing. A large black shape with something shiny attached to it lay near the ocean on the sand. At first he couldn't place what it was. It appeared to be an oilskin bag with something metal hanging out of one end, but upon closer examination, he was amazed to discover it was a seal. A seal with a metal object, a box, fastened to its head. There were a number of deep red cuts in the seal's body, and a chunk had been taken out of one flipper by what were obviously some very nasty teeth. Shark teeth, Twain figured. Twain bent over the seal, nudged it with his foot. The seal opened one eye. Very slowly, the seal rolled over. Twain saw there was a cord around his neck, and fastened to that was a writing tablet without paper and a stubby pencil. There was also a chain around the seal's neck, and from that hung a pair of sand-sprinkled spectacles. He discovered there was another thing even more amazing than a seal with a metal cap, pad, and pencil, and reading glasses about its neck. There were little thumbs growing from its flippers. <laughs> Four, the great Jules Verne, Ned story, a shape beneath the canvas. What have I done, about 10? When Twain arrived at Vern's villa pulling the seal on his formerly white coat, Vern was on the second floor landing, sitting with pen and paper, working on a dark, dark novel about Paris, thinking about how old he felt, the loss of his wife and children, who had gone off to live somewhere in France with the explorer Phileas Fogg. The dirty bastard. Vern tried to concentrate on his work. He had submitted pages of his novel to his editor, but the editor had been appalled, much too noir for him, lacking the glitter of his other novels, and they felt his readers would be disappointed. Fuck the readers. <laughs> it certainly was a dark book and not optimistic. In, I just added that in, by the way. And not optimistic <laughs> in the least. But the thing was, Byrne wasn't feeling too optimistic right then, and the novel reflected that. He felt he had fallen into a trap of writing only what many were now calling children's adventure stories. He longed to reach deeper and write darker. He wished he had his children back, and his wife had a hot croissant up her ass, and Fogg had one too. Neither croissant buttered, and both day old and stiff. He did have his experiments, his plans for devices that he worked on from time to time, and they had, of course, made some impact on the world, but so far their use and knowledge of them were restricted primarily to himself and his servant, Paspatu, Pas however you say that fucker's name, and to a handful of rich associates. The devices were far too expensive to give away, and parents had to be protected. Patents had to be protected, excuse me. He was thinking about these things as he pondered his malign manuscript with this with distracted concentration. So when he saw his old friend Samuel Mark Twain to the world, he was surprised and heartened to have a break from his work in editorial troubles, as well as, a curi as curious to discover what his bedraggled friend was pulling on top of his coat. Downstairs, Vern met Twain in the front yard and saw what he had. When Vern spoke English, his French accent was noticeable. 
but not too heavy. He had been practicing his English for some time and had learned much about American colloquialisms from the works of Twain, though he still had the occasional French phrasing. When he spoke to his friend, he called him by his real name, Samuel. When Twain saw Vern, he smiled. Jules, my friend Samuel, you have a seal on your coat. <laughs> yes, I do. He is dead, monsieur? Uh, no, he's not. He's been bitten by shark, but he, sharks, but he's alive. See that metal hat? It's bolted to his head. Fixed that way. Look at that stuff around his way. What do you make of that? I make nothing of it. Shall we put him in the barn? In the barn, Vern used a hand pump and water hose to wash down the seal, then examine his wounds. We'll need someone who can sew good stitches. I'll make a call. When Vern left, Twain made the seal as comfortable as possible, saw a large canvas draped over a large form. At the bottom of the canvas, he could see something shiny. He wondered what was beneath the canvas, and under ordinary circumstances, might have taken a look. But he didn't wish to leave the injured seal, and besides, his age had caught up with him a bit. Now that he had gotten comfortable sitting on the ground, he didn't want to get up unless it was absolutely necessary. <laughs> Vern went to the house, cranked the phone, and spoke in Spanish. When he came back to the barn, Twain was holding the seal's head up, giving him a drink of, uh, from a water dipper. That is strange, said Vern. He, he takes that like a man. The seal raised its flipper, and working its thumb against the skin of the appendage made a snapping sound. <laughs> well, well, I will be. How, how is it you Americans say I'd be down? Close enough. The seal tapped the pad on his chest, took hold of the pen. My God, Twain, Twain said, he wants writing paper. That is not possible. The seal snapped both thumbs against his flippers and made a kind of whistling sound with his mouth, then slapped both flippers against the pad and took hold of the pencil with one thumb and flipper and made a writing motion. Now I've seen it all, Vern said. Not if you actually write something, you haven't. <laughs> Vern ran to the house, procured paper and a better pencil. When he returned with the writing materials, the seal set up on its hind end, folded its flippant flipper tail, tip tail beneath it, cocked its back against the water pump, placed the glasses on its nose, took the writing supplies, and wrote in big block letters, My name is Ned. I was the boon companion of Buffalo Bill Cody who was eaten by sharks. I was injured by sharks. I like slow swims and big live fish and sometimes a beach ball to balance on my nose, though I know it's immature. I do not like sharks. I do like fish. Did I mention that? Holy shit, Twain said, a goddamn note-writing seal. <laughs> the seal continued to write, passing along pages as he filled them in the large block printing. Here is my story. I was made by a man named Dr. Momo. He lived on an island. I spent much of my time with Captain Bemo on the naughty lass. Once I was a regular seal, now I am special. <laughs> Holy mother of God, give Jesus the apple, Vern said. I wrote a novel based on this very interesting man, Captain Bemo. Not all true of that novel, mind you, but with the name changes, but with, but with much biographical detail. This is amazing. This seal claims to have known the real Captain Bemo on which my Nemo is based. I have also heard of this Momo, a scientist about half crazy was a rumor. H.G. Wells has written a story about him. He calls him Moro. Let him write, Jules, Twain said. I helped Bemo and Momo do research. I was able to do this because Dr. Momo enhanced my already considerable intelligence with this device you see on my head. He did things to my brain, amplified it. The device covers my brain, protects it. Momo became strange. He grafted a horse penis onto himself. <laughs> he made people out of animals and pieces of flesh. Buffalo Bill, Wild Bill, Hickok, Annie, Oakley, and Sitting Bull all came to Momo's Island, having crashed in the sea. Buffalo Bill was only ahead. It was in a jar powered by batteries and some kind of liquid. They had the Frankenstein monster with them. There was a tin man who worked for Dr. Momo. He and the monster fell in love. I think they may have drowned on the naughty lass. <laughs> As did Wild Bill Hickok and Annie Oakley, and I suppose Sitting Bull and a woman Momo made named Cat. Buffalo's Bill, Bill's head was eaten by sharks. I was bitten by sharks. 
I sure could use some fish. <laughs> what happened to Momo and Bimo, Vern asked. Ned shook his head, wrote, I do not know. I think they are dead. Momo's boat rammed the naughty lass and sunk it, I think. He was probably on board. The only way he could have lived is if he could live in pieces, like a puzzle. Do you like the no dime novels about Buffalo Bill Cody? Do you have any fish? <laughs> I, I don't have any fish, Twain said, but I do like the novels about Buffalo Bill. Can't say they're well written, but they are entertaining. Ned, I'm Samuel Clemens, though I go by the name Mark Twain as well, which is the name I write under. This is Jules Verne. Ned stiffened, his whiskers wiggled, he slapped his flippers together. He snatched up the pimple, uh, pencil, wrote, After the adventures of Buffalo Bill and the dime novels, I like you two best. About the same. Actually, I have read Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer, and I have read Journey to the Center of the Earth and From the Earth to the Moon, and if you will forgive me, I tried to read your story about Bimo. He was nothing like that. He was quite shy. Actually, he did do much that you wrote about, but not all of it, mind you. I wasn't there during all these events, but I did have the luxury of knowing the man. He had gas problems. That's another fact not well known. You might want to write that down in case you do a revised version of your book. Seals don't really mind that, however. Remember, we eat raw fish. And, of course, fish eat us. Sharks tried to eat me. I tried to save the head of Buffalo Bill. Did I say I do not like sharks and that I would like some fish? Yes, Fern said you did. And I read something about Buffalo Bill being a living head powered by battery, some kind of accident, Vern said, saved by a scientist, uh, some such thing. And I remember reading in the papers about part of the Wild West show being lost over the Pacific Ocean. I think this little seal is telling the truth, Samuel. Ned slapped the flipper on the ground hard. He wrote, of course I am. Do I look like a liar to you? <laughs> the man Vern had called arrived and stitched up Ned to the sound of grunts and squeals while Vern and Twain held the poor seal. Once Ned was able to snatch up the pencil and paper Vern had provided, he wrote, Where's the anesthesia? Want it? Gotta have it. I want it bad. Tell this horrible man to get off me and take his needles with him. Oh, you assholes! <laughs> Twain wrestled the pencil and paper away from Ned, said, Sorry, Ned, for your own good. My God, the veterinarian said in French, he writes. Yes, he does, Twain said, being able to understand French well enough and neatly. How is that possible, asked the vet. Uh, it's a trick, Twain said. With mirrors and such, the veterinarian asked. Twain looked at Vern. They both looked at the vet. Vern said, of course, mirrors. <laughs> One last very short piece. A meal, pleasant conversation, a, du a duck toy. That evening, they dined in Vern's fine dining room, waited on by a servant dressed in crisp black pants, white jacket, and black bow tie. Vern was now dressed in smoking jacket and loose pants and Moroccan slippers. He had provided a similar outfit for Twain. Earlier, while removing these items from his closet, he had stumbled over a red fez with a golden tassel that had been given to him by a friend. He had never worn it. Ned saw this while waiting for Vern to supply fresh clothes for Twain. It was obvious to Vern that he was taken with it, so he gave it to the little seal, fastened it over the metal box on Ned's head. Ned looked rather suave in the fez, like a seal of great importance and wealth with a harem. <laughs> with his stitches in place, Ned forgave them for holding him down. The pain had passed, and besides, he had a neat-as-hell red hat. Ned was placed in a portable Victorian-style tub with fresh water. Next to it was a long, low table on which sat bowls of fresh sardines, fish oil, and wine, and, of course, a napkin. Floating on the water was a rubber duck toy. At first, Ned resented it, but discovered it squeaked when he squeezed it. <laughs> and he eventually found it comforting. He bounced it on his nose and made seal sounds. The servant, Paspatu, or however you say that fucker's name, I can't who had been with Vern for years, appeared to be totally unperturbed by an injured seal near the dining table in a tub with a rubber duck. He looked as if he had seen it all, and then some. He poured up the seal's wine with the same panache he poured all wine. Upon completion of pouring, Ned took his pencil and pad from the little table and wrote, Thank you, kind sir. In French, Paspatou told Ned he was quite welcome, then said the same in English. Vern thanked him, and the servant went away, saying, Very good, monsieur. When we finished, Vern said we were retired to the study for cigars. 
Ned took up his pad, wrote, and held up what he had written. No, thank you. Smoking is bad for you. Very well, Severn said. Then you smoked herring. Will that be sufficient? Ned wrote again, held up his pad on which he had written. Smoked herring is not bad for you. How much smoked herring? <laughs> a lot, Vern said, and tomorrow I have another present for you, something I designed some time ago. Ned, in anticipation of the herring, ate his sardines and drank his wine, dozed in his tub, dreamed of female seals with long eyelashes, and from time to time the sound of the duck being squeaked could be heard. <laughs> Buy the books, please. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.